This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, there's the vanilla JavaScript guy. Joe Eames. Hey, there. It's the chocolate JavaScript guy. <laughs> That's a real thing, by the way. <laughs> Is it really? Oh, I yeah, wish it was. Um, it's a uh, it's an organization of from what I understand anyway, it's an organization of black JavaScript developers. Can I be this? I'll, I'm swirl. No, I want to be swirl. Swirl's my favorite. Swirl JavaScript guy. That's swirl. <laughs> I have to get Joe some fruitcake or something. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Just quick reminder: I think I announced last week. I'm still working on the DevRev a podcast about developer freedom. So go check it out, thedevrev.com. We have a special guest this week, and that is Hayden Pickering. Hayden, do you want to say hi? Hi, I'm the um, lemon and candied thyme JavaScript developer. Oh, wow. I was actually looking into this today and the idea that vanilla is plain. So people say vanilla JavaScript, they mean plain JavaScript. But actually, if you had plain ice cream, that would just be like... Milk? It would just be like frozen milk. It would be terrible. So, yeah, I'm so I'm, yeah, lemon and candy thyme, which I, I understand is a flavor of ice cream, but I don't know. I, I've not tried it. Yeah. So Hayden's high class and Joe's low class. I, <laughs> that's what I gathered. That one I'm out several times in this episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I think if I remember right, we invited you to come talk to us about uh, the, the CSS is the new JavaScript or something like that. Uh, you know, Hayden's going to be talking about inclusive components um, and maybe some oh, other is stuff. Is that what it was? Yeah. I got although, all kinds of confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hayden put out this really awesome library of inclusive design patterns, um, nice little bundles of CSS and JavaScript to make the web more accessible. And I thought it would be really cool to talk about. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk about that. That's all right. Well, fill us in. Been a thing for a while. So I so totally my- prepped on the wrong thing, by the way. <laughs> we're all we're all winging it here it's so. a classy establishment here <laughs> hours wasted uh, i haven't I, I don't have anything prepared either basically so this all started in canada so i i find traveling difficult i get really stressed with traveling and especially long haul and stuff like that so flying from the uk to canada was hard for me so i needed something to do on the plane and so I'd done this book called Inclusive Design Patterns, and it was sort of broadly talking about the idea of organizing inclusive design and and implementation of inclusive design into discrete patterns that you might implement around the place. And I kind of wanted to do a blog, and the idea was that the blog would actually be a, a pattern library. So each article was not so much just like a reusable copy and paste code thing but it was more exploring what you might document as a pattern and and the kind of decision making um, that you'd go through to try and make it as inclusive and accessible as possible because that's kind of my thing that I'm interested in and so I did this blog and I put it on Patreon and a lot of kind people helped me fund it and spurred me on and asked me to do articles about this and that and I've always wanted to do like an accessible version of this but um, I didn't really know how to 
to go about it. Can you break it down? And these are like 3,000 or 4,000 word articles. So they get quite in depth. They, it's a, they're proper sort of like geek fodder in terms of interaction design, but an inclusive approach to it. And so I've, I've done a few articles on there. It got some traction. And then I decided that I wanted to turn it into a book. So I've now went through the whole rigmarole of like doing eBooks, which that's a weird experience because it's like you use CSS, but it's kind of like a old version of CSS, but also CSS, which supports stuff, which you wouldn't think would be supported yet or buy anything. And yeah, some weird esoteric stuff. So that was a whole journey in its own right. But um, so now I've got this eBook out of it, which is kind of, it's the whole blog, but divide, so each article is actually a chapter. And I've just updated it, improved the demos and stuff like that. So it's just like a better version of the blog, but it's the same content essentially. So if you don't want to buy the book, just go to the blog. And so now I'm talking to Smashy Magazine. Well, actually, no, we've, we've signed the contract. So they're, they're, they're going to do a print version of this, the inclusive components as like a book. And the idea is that we're going to have this triptych because that will be my third book with them. I kind of tried to rewrite the same book over and over again for them about inclusive interaction design. And hopefully I, I'll nail it this time with this book. So that's pretty- I love pretty, the hard sell there, Hayden. <laughs> Don't give me money, just read it for free. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the, that's the funny thing is that I did the first book and I, I approached them and I, I'd written some articles for them and said, and so I said to them, hey, would you be interested in doing a whole book about this? Because I think there's maybe a market for it. And they weren't, they felt that there wasn't that big of a market to make that much money out of it. I mean, obviously, they really wanted to support it, but at the same time, you know, it, uh, there's a bottom line to worry about and everything. Um, they still, they were still very supportive, and they got behind me, and they said, "Well, let's just, we'll do it, but we'll do it as an ebook because then we don't have the overhead costs and the upfront costs and all of that stuff." And then about a year later, um, the editor at the time the magazine came back to me and said oh, I've just read your book it's, it's it's quite good and I was like well didn't you read it like whilst we were doing it in the first place and they and they went well yeah kind of but you know I skimmed it but then I came back to it and then in that time the kind of accessibility and the idea of inclusive design and everything was much more part of the popular unconscious it was it was stuff that people were beginning to really talk about i mean google made a lot of efforts there and you have some great people there who are very loud about it and have done video courses and things like that um the my the book that i wrote and some of the stuff that i'd written had helped a bit as well and then there's a whole accessibility community behind that and all of the people that i've learned stuff from like laney watson and steve faulkner and all of the people at the pass yellow group and finally, a lot of this stuff, something happened where it kind of seemed to break through a bit more and have a bit like people were like actually paying attention. And so they said, well, let's let's re-release the book, but let's do it as a hardback. So I was really excited about that, but I actually didn't want to do the same book because I wanted to write something a bit different around obviously broadly the same subjects, but I wanted it to be around patterns because I wanted to address the idea that people think much more these days in terms of patterns and modules and in terms of design systems. So that was the idea for the inclusive design patterns thing was to do that. Yeah. And now we've, we've, then there was a blog and then we've, we've gone for all of that. And then we, we're where we are now, basically. So rewriting components all the time is my thing, basically. 
rewriting and documenting components, even whether it's for books or whether it's for clients. Uh, that's kind of what I do. And I do a lot of the vanilla JavaScript for that, Chris, which you'll, because it's like, if you do something in vanilla JavaScript or, you know, plain JavaScript, then the client can implement it in various different ways. They can take it and turn it into React, or they can take it and turn it into Vue, or they can take it and turn it into, what's the trendy one at the moment? Uh, Cycle JS or something? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. You're thinking of Backbone. Run. Backbone's the trendy Backbone's one. Backbone's the one, yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's the one. Uh, prototype, that's the one yeah. I was thinking of, yeah. Um, this is the, I'm, I'm actually writing a talk at the moment about this, um, the, like the power of plain JavaScript. And I, I I can stand up in front of JavaScript engineers and I'm, I'm, there's no way that I could ever be a JavaScript engineer because I don't have that deep knowledge of the language and, and, and how to architect it. But I'm an interaction designer who knows enough about JavaScript to be able to say, here is kind of like actual working code, but you, you treat it as pseudo code and you take it and you turn it into whatever flavor of JavaScript it is, whatever ice cream flavor you're doing. So plain JavaScript does play a big role in that. And I think it's kind of a powerful thing because you can just sort of use it to show just what needs to be done, but not how to do it. And it's like you do it your way so long as you get the, you know, the focus management and the semantics and the, you know, the behavior is correct and you change the correct uh, area attributes or whatever is whatever's going on there. Yeah, that's it, I think, pretty much. Comprehensive. <laughs> so the hardback book did, does it get produced that did i hear you say that it's we're at that stage where contracts have been signed and everything and it's a case of just like reformatting it so i i i have all of the css and everything that i use to make the the ebook slash pdf version of it but for the print it has to go for a different process fortunately i'm not doing uh, that part of it. Actually, last time we did this, there was an unfortunate error that happened. So we were taking some Markdown and stuff, and it had, you know, you get flavors of Markdown where it does like the cool quotes. So you'll get the curly quotation marks instead of the straight ones and that kind of thing. And accidentally, there was someone who I, whose name I won't mention, who was part of the process, accidentally ran like a, they did like a grep or something over it, or like a, a global like find and replace for some curly quotes, but accidentally removed all of the apostrophes in the whole book. So, wow, because <laughs> they're difficult to spot then after, and there was no way to undo it for whatever reason. But then they, it, it's really difficult to spot <laughs> then because there are some some words you'd look at it and think, does that need an apostrophe or not? And I mean, I'm, I'm a confident writer and I, I think I get it right most of the time, you know, like I'll put the possessive apostrophe in the right place and I'll leave it out when I, when it, it's not needed, but going over my whole like 35, 40,000 words and every page thinking where, where should the apostrophes be and where should they not be? That was kind of, um, yeah, that was a bit of an ordeal. But uh, we got there in the end. I think there was still, you know, there's, there's the difficulty with doing print stuff is that there's always going to be some, some errors which uh, remain. So they weren't that, using Git is what you're saying? Yeah, no, not for that part of it. I'm not sure what the process was. I mean, we were in Git for a lot of the editorial process. 
but not for that last bit. I mean, I think it got moved into InDesign or something like that. Well, they, they probably switched to TFS. That was the problem. T- I don't know TFS. What's TFS? <laughs> <laughs> it's Microsoft's current. Uh, yeah, is it, is it is their current? Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I, this came up recently on there was a, like a sp- uh, some sort of argument or something on Twitter where someone was talking about Word is a terrible word processor or whatever, and it it is. And they they came up with some other proprietary software. But for me, it's like if you take HTML and CSS, or you take a Markdown and turn it into HTML and CSS, what you put in, you know, you, you're going to get out is going to be dependable. You don't get that thing where you move things around and things go weird and then you copy and paste something and then it gets a different font for reasons which you can't explain or anything like that. I, I love working with Markdown when it comes to, but then you'll, you'll have someone <coughs> who's part of the process who isn't comfortable with that. Then they take all the Markdown process it somehow turn it into Word and then you've got to then try and turn whatever they've done with that back into Markdown, which is the difficult, the really difficult part. And uh, yeah, so there's always an element of that that happens. But hey, yeah. Hmm. So switching gears for a minute here, Hayden, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about maybe accessibility on the web in general. And given that this is JavaScript jabber, perhaps some some of the more um, creative waves you've seen people break accessibility on the web <laughs> with their code. Um, yeah. Can we maybe dig into that a little bit? So I, I guess if I were to maybe think of kind of a way to kick this off, what are some of the most common accessibility issues you see or that you're trying to address with the Inclusive Components Project? And the, kind of the whole premise of it was that there aren't that many different kinds of components that we use. Generally speaking, I mean, most things we do with JavaScript are just different ways of showing things and then hiding things again. In terms of, in, obviously, in terms of interaction design, I'm discounting any kind of stuff that we're doing with Node or anything that we're doing with like uh, requesting resources or anything like that. Most of what we're doing in terms of interaction design is showing and hiding information. And fundamentally we're always getting that wrong as simple as some of that stuff is so you sort of your most basic component i suppose is your like collapsible section so you have kind of like a handle which is like a button but it's also like the label for the thing and then in terms of interaction you click on that and then it opens up the like the content underneath it right so it'll be like a heading and then you click on it and then the stuff appears. And for whatever reason, it's just not something that we've ever been taught how to do in a way which is accessible in terms of the interaction, in terms of the way that the information is perceived, the way that it works, the way that you can actually interact with it. And I think that's really an astounding thing. And I think where that comes from is that we're not taught that, I mean, it's an interactive medium the web, but we still think of the design part of it as being visual. And I know this is this is something which has been which has been talked about a lot, I suppose. But but it really ends up affecting accessibility. So you this idea that as long as you can click on it and it appears, then that works, and then that's an experience, and that can be delightful or whatever. And then then you move on to worrying about how cool the animation is and whether it should sort of bounce around in a sort of Disney style fashion or whatever. 
but um yeah there's so many there's so many bits to get wrong with such a, a simple bit of interaction there so one of the classic things is you take the heading which is kind of like inevitably would be the handle for the for the collapsible section and then you turn that into a button so then you then you're removing the heading semantics and without the heading semantics then your screen reader won't be aware that there's a heading there which means that then the screen reader user won't be able to use it as kind of a navigational cue they won't be able to f- like discover it in their interface and using their shortcut keys it will just be a button then but then just by putting like a, a button roll say an area roll on the heading then that's going to go wrong because like first of all because it removed the semantics like i said but also because headings just because you put like a roll on there which then changes the semantics the way that you interact with that thing doesn't change so you're going to end up with a with a functional button in the button html element sense so it won't be focusable by keyboard so then you've got that problem as well but then there's also on a sort of more complex level there's the state thing so so when you click on something and it opens something, how do you communicate that non-visually? And then when you click on it again, that needs to be communicated that it's, goes, it's gone back into the uh, initial or the default state. And you need to then use things like uh, ARIA expanded to do that kind of thing. So there's, there's lots of ways that even the simplest things can go wrong. So the idea was to, was to say... Here is, here is a simple thing that we do all the time, but we do it badly. And not through lack of intelligence or talent, and because I work with people who are way more, way smarter, have a much better aptitude for, for programming and designing in general than I do. It just so happens that <clears throat> I've taken an interest in the, in the accessibility side of things. So, that's, so I, can, I can say, look, this is this is great, but have you thought about the fact that this is gonna this is gonna fail people? And usually, what it is is they'll go, "Oh yeah, shit, that's um, that's true. Okay, that I'd not thought of that because you just you're not kind of a, a, a habituated to think about these things, really. Yeah. So where should someone start? Like, I care about this stuff, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it, and I still screw it up a fair bit. I have some accessibility specialist friends who regularly pick apart my code and tell me all the places I've screwed up. That's nice. Uh, Yeah, no, like, you know, (laughs) friends like that. I think you may know one or two of them, like Eric Bailey, Scott O'Hara. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. They, they, they regularly, but like in a very kind way, but <laughs> not everybody has someone to do that for them. So, you know, like aside from digging through your components, you know, like what are, what are some things I can do to kind of better make sure my code is going to work for as many people as possible and work in the way that I expect it to? That's a really good question. And that, that's actually quite a hard one. The thing about it, so you have accessibility and you have inclusive design. I think where a lot of people go wrong is that they, they think of accessibility as like a checklist. And so they're thinking, well, I'm more or less going to design things in the same way and build things in the same way. But then I'll have this extra step where I have to just check that Okay, so that that's going to work with keyboard. Okay, that's it's going to be okay if people zoom in. It's going to be okay if such and such, you know. And which it's great that people add that step in, but that's actually it's, that's not going to really help. And um, I do a workshop where we talk about design ideation, 
And the thing that I try to get people to focus on is that the whether or not something's going to be accessible, and I mean broadly speaking accessible in terms of whether or not it's going to be useful and usable and understandable to the broadest number of people is usually a question of what you make in the first place. So it's a question, first off, of trying to come up with the simplest, most straightforward and most understandable thing. You can get the technical parts of it in place later. So the the area roles and the and the focus management and all of those sort of technical i mean even if it, you might not even need to worry about those things if it's such if it's a particularly simple solution anyway um so i use an example of the the uh like tab interfaces and tab interfaces are the bane of my life because everyone wants to make tab interfaces and lots of people are really excited and interested in getting tab interfaces as successful as possible. But that's actually a really difficult and kind of contentious issue because there's the prescribed way to make tab interfaces accessible. And this is addressing accessibility. So what do I mean by that? I mean, technically making it accessible as far as whoever came up with the standard is concerned. So tab interfaces are supposed to behave in certain ways and they're supposed to communicate certain information in certain states. So you start off with your tabs and the tabs will be in a tab list, which is defined with an area role. So that helps to identify that those things are tabs and not other elements. So when the screen reader user begins to interact with them, then they, they're aware of that. And then your individual tabs have to have the tab role so that they're enumerated and that they're identified. And then you have tab panels and they're supposed to be connected up. Then you have all of the keyboard interactions, all of which are designed to emulate kind of old school sort of Windows native interactions in terms of tab interfaces. So the idea is you go onto one tab and then you'll press the arrow keys left and right and then that will cycle through the tabs. And then the the actual tab key is how you go from one tab into a tab panel, the open tab panel and back again. So this is very prescribed, very sort of actually quite complex to implement stuff, which is, you know, hijacking different keys and things. And you have to worry about the fact that those keys will be doing this interaction, but actually screen reader users will be used to their arrow keys actually doing something else, which is browsing from element to element. That kind of stuff, you've got to weigh up the fact that they uh, and uh, manage expectations in terms of that kind of thing. Also, um, a lot of users are, are used to interacting in a certain way when it comes to web pages. They're used to only being able to move between things, in, between interactive elements using the tab keys. So the idea that there might be arrow keys um, that they can use to switch between things, to focus and activate things is unusual, unexpected. They might not know to do that. So there's all of these different factors that you have to consider with tab interfaces. It's very contentious. There's, there's so many ways to get it wrong. And even if you do it right as prescribed by the W3C, there's not actually really a great deal of, genuinely, there's really not that much research behind it to say that it's actually usable. So if something's not usable, then definitely it's not accessible. So a lot of people have decided, well, do you know what? Tab interfaces don't work for me. I'm going to do them a bit differently. I'm going to actually enable people to use the tab key to go between things instead because they're not going to know that the arrow keys are active. They might even communicate tabs in a different way because actually, you know, is anyone going to hear tab list one of, you know, uh, and tab one of three tabs, et cetera? Are they, 
are they used to hearing that kind of thing? I mean, in research, I've 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 frequently seen people struggle with uh, with this sort of advanced ARIA stuff because they're just not used to it being implemented, least of all correctly. Um, so, so you have to do a kind of lateral thinking, and it's like, well, what is the tab interface for? It's it's for traversing different sections of content. So the, the advantage, broadly speaking, is that you get to focus on one bit of content at a time and all the other stuff is hidden away without having to scroll all over the place or whatever. And there are other ways of doing that. I think accordions generally, uh, I mean, they kind of do the same thing, but they're much easier to make accessible because they are just that open, closed state. They're much easier to make responsive. And responsive design, after all, is an accessibility issue because it's not just the size of the viewport. Also, um, breakpoints are triggered according to zoom levels. So it's actually something which is covered in WCAG 2.1, you know, like the new accessibility guidelines to do with reflow. The idea is if you do zoom in, then it should reconfigure into one column. So it should be responsive so that so that people who have zoomed don't have to kind of move backwards or forwards and use horizontal scrolling, et cetera. And it's much easier to do with accordions. Accordions naturally are one column anyway. And then you have your text in your kind of handles for your accordion uh, segments, which just naturally wraps, right? Because it's just a one column thing, whereas tabs are next to each other. What happens when you have loads of tabs? How do they wrap? That doesn't work anymore. So some things are just generally just bad bits of interface. And the first thing to do is to to try and avoid using them. That's pretty much it, I think. Do you ever find that you have people who who complain about just like you you find um, bits of interface which are just unpopular generally? Because if you do, then they're probably inaccessible bits of interface as well, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's, That's a great um, guideline. Mm, I like that. You um you talked a little bit about ARIA roles. That is an area that I think causes tremendous confusion for folks in two directions. One of them being, I don't know when to use these, so I'm just not going to, which is the bucket that I sometimes fall into. And then yeah. on the other end of things, there's, I don't know when not to use these, so I'm going to use them for everything. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and from what I understand, both of those can be detrimental to kind of the inclusive experience. So I don't know, do you have any sort of kind of rough guidelines around when these things are needed versus when they're not? What's the point of them? I think I've heard Scott O'Hara talk sometimes yeah. about how they're kind of the attribute of last resort when kind yeah. of native semantic stuff doesn't fit the bill, but that's kind of fuzzy. I don't know if you have something a little bit more concrete or if that's about as close as you can get with this sort of stuff. So... Scott's bang on. I mean, Scott's great. He really knows his stuff. So, so if you're chatting with him about it, then yeah, I would, I would trust him to the end of the earth with what he says about Aria. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. People either, not just Aria, but kind of anything to do with accessibility broadly. I think you, I, I find that um, that folks tend to avoid it, uh, not because they don't care, not because they don't want to make things accessible, not because they don't, they don't want to, to support people with disabilities and people who are, who are different from them and, and use, use the web in a different way to them. I think, I think generally speaking, uh, developers want to do a good job. There's a lot of pride and, and they, want, they, they want it to be a quality experience for as many people as they can. They don't want to let people down. Um, but they will specifically avoid it because they feel that 
they actually they feel like they don't want to be the one that does it because they're afraid that they'll they they'll they could really mess it up for people and they'd rather someone who was a bit more expert or whatever had a go at it and i mean Leonie watson has taken to to doing this thing in most of the talks that i've seen her do and she she's done kind of a, a series of different talks all of which are really good and are, are worth looking up but she she's injected this one thing that she says into into all of these which is um which is basically it doesn't have to be perfect so don't like don't take just because it's dealing with vulnerable people and and, and that's a lot of pressure in a way first of all don't think that someone else is taking care of it because the chances are they're not because everyone is scared of getting it wrong you have to kind of do your best and it's always you know improvement any kind of improvement is fine and and I get Chris that you're sort of not so much hesitant but you're you're concerned that you you are self-conscious that you're not as good at it as you'd want to be but the thing is everyone is you know everyone is only just sort of muddling through and doing their best with all of this stuff right and accessibility is just one of those things and it's just another thing to to have a go at and do your best at basically and I think it's it's mischaracterized as a kind of on-off switch as well like it's either accessible or it's not accessible and and that's not the case if you look at it more broadly in terms of inclusive design then it's much more it's it's bad or it's better or it's good or it's impressive you know it's much more on a scale this episode is sponsored by sentry.io recently i came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps then i asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Is this kind of like how we all had to write perfect CSS or JavaScript our first time nobody would ever become a developer because <laughs> yeah. we're all starting out terrible? So. Yeah, but there is a lot of pressure, though, in all of this thing, these things, isn't it? It's like folks won't share or blog about the stuff that they do with their with their CSS because or the, or whatever it is they're doing because they're worried that it's going to get picked apart but ultimately as long as you're aiming to actually use it to create something which is worthwhile for people then it doesn't matter what kind of what the style is or the or the syntax is or the the flavor is that you're doing it in um, mm-hmm. I think but to to address your other your other question about where it goes the other way where people just throw as much aria at something as possible that really is a problem and which is why my friend steve faulkner the, the mighty steve faulkner as we call him he as part of the html specification or the aria specification as part of the html5 specification um the first rule of aria is is don't use it essentially um which is <laughs> which which means you know use semantic html and native elements first because what a lot of people don't understand, and I'm sure you you do get this, but a lot of people do get this wrong um, when they're starting out, is that they think that without ARIA roles on things, 
there isn't any accessibility information for people with screen readers. But there's actually, there's explicit roles that you can apply with ARIA, which will will either provide a role where there isn't one or override an existing role, or there's implicit roles. So a button element already has an implicit role. So in the in the, the so-called accessibility tree, which is kind of like a, the version of the DOM, which includes all of the accessible uh, information, a button has a role, just like a div with role equals button has a role of button. Uh, and a lot of folks kind of miss that. They think the web's completely inaccessible unless I put loads of ARIA in there and then it will be accessible, uh, which isn't the case. Um, but yeah, so people can go over, be overzealous. And there was one example that happened recently. I was working with a client and um, someone had put this ARIA role in this interface and it had and it completely and utterly broke the interface for to our knowledge to voiceover users because we got we actually got a through customer service we got a complaint from a voiceover user i think it was voiceover on ios so vo- uh, just to be clear voiceover is the um, screen reader for apple devices and they just said it's really weird it doesn't work at all i go onto the page and it reads everything out like one mass, like it just all of the all of the words on the page, and I, it's difficult to discern between those things. It's like reading it all out in, as like one string. And I thought to myself, I've seen something floating around in this application which might be causing this. And it's and it was like a sort of a a bug that I was going to attend to anyway, but I hadn't appreciated at the time the massive effect it would have. And what was weird about it was that it was a React application which used a React router. And I don't know if you get this in like React Router 4. I think they might have deprecated or removed it, but it's um, it was a component called Switch and it kind of wraps your different root elements. So it was a thing that wraps the, the routes that you'd switch between, hence the name. And what someone had done as they put role equals switch on that on that named React component. And in ARIA terms, role equals switch is like a, it's kind of like a slightly esoteric button role. It's like putting role equals button on something. But this switch React component was like around everything. It was like basically like a wrapper div thing. So what happened is voiceover then thought that the whole application or the whole screen was one giant button hence it then completely obliterated all of the kind of structured semantics like all of the headings and everything just became plain text because they thought all of that was just a button label and I thought this was fascinating because it, it I mean first of all it showed how much damage you can do with just one attribute and there was actually some sort of effort there to make it accessible that was the kind of tragic thing the kind of bittersweet thing was that at least there was someone there who thought if I put this on here, then this, this router thing will be more accessible to people. They were wrong and they should have looked up how ARIA works and everything, but at least they had uh, the right intention, I guess. But what was really fun was that after this complaint came in, we, I sat down with a developer and I said, we're going to do some accessibility work today and we're going to remove this, we're going to remove this role, this role attribute. And I explained to them why. And they said, oh, yeah, that sounds a bit weird. But they they weren't convinced that it was going to have as big an impact as I said it would. 
And the following day, we got this really gushing email from this customer who'd originally complained that it wasn't working, saying, I can't believe you managed, like, it didn't work at all, and now it all works. Like, within two days, suddenly this all works for me now. And um, <clears throat> and I didn't have the heart to tell them that it was just one misplaced attribute, but uh, but that was literally. It. I mean, it was a it was a it was a one minute PR with all of the like usual checks and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, this powerful stuff area basically. <laughs> so the one thing I was going to bring up, and I apologize, I've had to step away, and I'm kind of coming back in in the middle of our conversation, but. I don't know if this is even something like maybe that you've mentioned in the book, but I just kind of wanted to raise it up for people that are listening. So I have like a personal story of a friend of mine who I was doing the boot camp with and he had some uh, very severe tremors. And so I, I think it's really important. Like we talk about, you know, people with colorblindness or people using screen readers, but even people with some mild issues kind of like that or some mild disabilities, I think it's important to like make sure your button sizes are, you know, large enough or mm. if there's a clickable link, making sure that that's large enough for somebody who might suffer from something like that to be able to actually click on because he really struggled with a lot of those types of things. And it was, it was a shame to see he's a really, really talented person. So Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're encroaching on something which is close to my heart, though, which is, again, in terms of inclusive design, usually if you you do the sort of common sense thing and, and just make something a bit better for someone, usually what it'll do is it'll help other people as well in different ways. So just making interfaces really flexible and robust and just really clear and simple. Um, most people are going to be affected positively. So I, I always find it really weird that we have like this stuff where people would design an interface and it would all be sort of really subtle and really unclear and it will be kind of like faint fonts, like, you know, you get your sort of light gray fonts on your white background and they think they're fixing that interface by having like a, a checkbox somewhere that says accessibility mode where you click that and it's like <laughs> contrast and stuff. Oh no. And it's just weird, isn't it? Because no one needs to look at a this subtle, faded kind of be accessible by default, I think. Exactly. Yeah. No one if needs wanna, an interface to be obtuse. <laughs> if we if we want to check a check a button for it to be a little bit more artistic, then we could do that. But it should definitely be accessible by default, I think. I totally agree. Uh, artistic yeah, yeah, yeah. it should be the other way around like i want to go into confusing our uh, art uh, mode yeah abstract <laughs> mode <laughs> yeah and i mean great gray text on white background just doesn't look nice anyway i mean maybe it doesn't look nice because it's difficult to read but but yeah so the the button thing like this really good example you brought up about the enlarged buttons so a lot of people think oh well, you've got to make the buttons larger or make text larger in general because um, it's easier to see because we're, we're very focused on in terms of accessibility we usually think of one demographic which is which is your uh, varying degrees of vision impairment but as you as you pointed out and it's really uh, important also it means it's an easier thing to to tap or to click um, because not all people who have motor impairments are 100% keyboard users, for instance, they might switch between using the keyboard if they struggle or they'll use the mouse if they can. And you'll want things which are easy to click as well. And there's things like one, one thing that I discovered recently because I'm investigating into Parkinson's especially where you, where you have tremors. 
is when you you maybe have a grid of different items and you can choose between those items like cards which you can click on um and then when they go into one column onto a onto like a handheld device so you're operating with touch it's trying to scroll without accidentally actually activating one of those things because if you've got a shaky hand you're tapping the screen all the time so it's really important to have like quite significant gaps between the items so there, there are those areas where people can kind of safely press their finger on that area and move that area and then they know they're not in danger of activating something so yeah i think it's really it's really important to address things from the inclusive way of doing it is to just kind of basically any improvement you do which you know isn't going to badly affect someone else like it's not like tit for tat then then just go for it and just do it and do it as the default yeah awesome yep are we going to talk about vanilla javascript chris oh i now you're putting me on the spot hidden um yeah, yeah. can we actually have vanilla bean javascript i like vanilla yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, no it was java beans enter tries java beans vanilla yeah. bean <laughs> javascript i feel like is using evergreen browsers <laughs> and then you have vanilla javascript which is like ie 11 I just think it's really weird that vanilla came to mean like the default or the, like the boring version of things because like compared to having a fruit flavor, like you expect fruits to be the flavors, strawberry, <laughs> banana, whatever. It's a, it's a plant. It's a pod of a plant, which is weird. And it has a really indescribable taste. So the fact that <laughs> that's become like supposed to be the, the boring, like run of the mill thing is, is odd. <laughs> And I like to think of that in terms like JavaScript as well. It's kind of run of the mill to use some sort of massive bloated, opinionated framework to do stuff and actually kind of unusual to do things with just a little bit of plain JavaScript, right? That's the, un- that's the kind of um, maverick <laughs> approach. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to talk vanilla JS. I don't know, did you have an angle hidden or are you just giving me a hard time? I, I don't know, really. I mean, I've been really enjoying your um, your blog post recently about it. And they've, they've got me thinking. I don't know, really. I, I guess... I'm, the, there's an accessibility element here. I yeah, shouldn't say accessibility. Kind of it's more, it's, it's an inclusion yeah. element. I suppose yeah. technically it can also be an accessibility element. But, you know, you, you run into situations where you may build an interaction design with JavaScript that you you're detecting certain types of interactions, but not others or like actually i just came across one the other day with like drop down menus where they behaved beautifully on hover but if you tried to use it with a touch device or with a keyboard you know if you focused into the menu um with a keyboard it didn't work if you hovered over it and then moved down it was fine you know so there's that aspect of it i could kind of beat this horse all day long but <laughs> the whole what happens if for some reason the JavaScript file doesn't load. And I'm not even talking about like JS driven content, but even something like, you know, like like accordions or show more, show less kind of menus where we'll just habitually display none of the stuff and then make it visible when you click on something. But if the, the script to load that or to make that thing actually show doesn't load, then you can click the button a million times and nothing happens. And it's oh yeah, yeah. It's not people like going around browsing the web with JavaScript off. It's bad internet connections and mm. uh, 
uh, hyper-aggressive corporate firewalls, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, um, so there's the progressive enhancement element, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which which was last week's episode, so I don't necessarily want to harp on it too too hard. Uh, okay, cool, people, cool. People but, will probably get bored with me fighting this good, good fight over and over again. But, um, <laughs> so just like a, I guess is, I mean, you've touched on it already, but I think it is worth noting that progressive enhancement is kind of an inclusive design, and 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 then therefore a, an accessibility issue to some extent. Mm-hmm. But I think these things sort of dovetail really nicely as well. So I always say to people. A lot of people think of a progressive enhancement as just being, it's just make it work when JavaScript isn't there. Um, but it's not as simple as that. It, I, to me, it's you're going to have JavaScript <laughs> in 2018. You just shouldn't use the JavaScript for things which are, it shouldn't be used for. Mm. So if you've got basic behaviors which are available to you through just through br- the browser and the way that the browser works then you should use that instead, right? So you get people who who make uh, kind of like Zoom your text in and out widgets and things like that. You know, we have like the big A and the little A and you click on them to deal with that. And it's like, they think they're helping and to make things more accessible and stuff, but actually that's just more interface and more stuff, which is not great for performance, not great for the overall complexity of the interface. You just need to make sure you're supporting the basic browser behaviors. You don't need the javascript to do that stuff for you you just need to make sure that javascript doesn't get in the way of it and um, doesn't hijack it and yeah you just need you need to let the browsers do things for you i mean like we touched on the idea of you can you can put an aria role on a div and kind of make a screen reader think that div is a button but if it's not focusable and it doesn't um it's not activatable both with the enter and the space key and it, I mean, there's so many different behaviors which browsers give to native button elements, which you would you would have to try and emulate using JavaScript. So the, the thing that the button does, that's going to have to be JavaScript, ultimately. I mean, unless it's actually a button which submits a form in the sort of old school get and post sense. But the actual behavior of the button in terms of the interaction design you really want to leave the browser to do that in terms of performance, in terms of accessibility, just in terms of reliability, uh, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This actually reminds me a little bit of, um, Amy, you did some sort of like video interview not that long ago, I think, where you talked about, it was all about CSS, but I seem to recall you touching on some something around how, you know, there's times where CSS is actually a much better choice than JavaScript for certain oh, yeah. things. I don't know if this yep. is at all related. Oh, yeah. um, it's been a little while since I watched watched the video, <laughs> but I I remember being like really hyped about it. Um, <laughs> um, it was oh, it was a Microsoft developer talk. That's what it was, like a five. Probably thing. so, but that's that. I um, usually what I'm trying to express whenever I speak about um, CSS versus JavaScript is just that um, like CSS transitions, things like that, those are optimized by the browser where you really don't want to use JavaScript for those types of things, even if you can, because JavaScript is going to use the CPU or CSS is going to use your GPU. Mm -hmm. faster. Uh, Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. (laughs) But as somebody who loves JavaScript, you know, asked me two and a half years ago, I've been like, yeah, I'm totally using JavaScript for everything. CSS. (laughs) And then some very talented designers taught me the right way. 
<laughs> the right tool for the job. It's interesting because I'm like the other way around. It's like I want to tr- I want to kind of do everything just with HTML and CSS, and I try to. But there, there are like you get to a level of complexity where actually, so a lot of people will think the more you do something with just HTML and CSS, the more accessible. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. But actually, that's not the case. So you get people who do this like checkbox hack thing where you can use the checkbox and like deferring the checked state and you can create menus that way and that kind of thing. So functionally, it'll be like a JavaScript click, but really behind the scenes, what it's doing is just toggling a, a checkbox. So it's like a menu which has two different states which works without JavaScript. But actually, in terms of accessibility, it would be better to use JavaScript to do it because a checkbox is not what a screen reader user would expect to encounter as a kind of menu toggle button. So they're going to, they're going to think they're in a form and that they're filling out some information in a form. So you can use those kinds of hacks, but actually actually a lot of the time JavaScript can make things better. Um, Of course, the classic old thing that people believed was that, um, screen readers didn't understand JavaScript at all, um, which I think is now largely accepted as untrue and is sort of debunked. But um, but there are still folks who I still hear from and they're like, well, this is made with JavaScript, so this can't possibly be accessible. And it's like, well, no, uh, <laughs> screen readers, like if the state changes through JavaScript, then they're, they're like their own version of the, their virtual like cache of the DOM will will update and everything. So it's all good. And then by extension, you get people who say, well, if it's made in React, it can't be accessible. But the thing is, a lot of people make stuff in React, which is inaccessible, but that's their fault. It's not React's fault. <laughs> React can make some really cool, really accessible experiences. You just put, you know, semantic elements in your JSX rather than divs or whatever, um, as long as you're using the semantic elements appropriately, of course. All right. Well, let's, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Uh, before we do that, though, Hayden, where do people find you online? I'm Hayden Works on Twitter. I'm I'm usually on Twitter. I'm trying to wean myself off and, and be more on Mastodon, but um, that's not Mastodon? working. Mastodon, great as I'd like. Yeah, uh, it's the email of Twitter, or <laughs> the Twitter version of email. I don't know. It's like a decentralized microblogging. Yeah, I was worried about it. Uh, yeah, it's um, like it's like Twitter, but it's yeah, it's not a company. It's it's um, different instances which then interconnect. It's they call it federated. I don't know. It's it's complicated, but <laughs> it's basically the same interface. So I'm at Hayden at Mastodon dot social on there. Yeah, or or if you wanted to follow the in, uh, inclusive components account, there's one of those on Twitter, which is inclusive comps for short. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm just everywhere else. I'm just Hayden because I've fortunately I've got quite an unusual name and a quite an unusual spelling of my 